PH Shrinking, the podcast where I interview graduate students from a variety of fields all about their research. I'm your host, Sadie Witkowski, and with me today is a third-year graduate student in the Department of Environmental Sciences and Policy at the Central European University. Please welcome Olia Morris. Yay! Hi! Um, hi! So excited to have you on. Yeah, it's great. Nice to speak with you. Yeah, so uh, what's your, your random fact for us? Um, so my random fact, I don't know if this is well known or not, maybe everyone knows this except for me, but um, I was going down one of these research holes, uh, as you do, and I discovered that the grandfather of Charles Darwin, Erasmus Darwin, was actually a poet, and he wrote some pretty um, trippy uh, poems about plants and like what they would be like if they had relationships with each other. And um, it's available to read online if you need some, like, quarantine reading or something. Whoa. But, yeah. That's wild. I, I had no idea about that. Okay. So, yeah, sometimes I'm like, oh, you know, I just found out about this thing. And then I mention it to someone and they're like, yeah, totally. Or, you know, so, um, but, yeah, so discovering new things all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that. Um, well, <laughs> so speaking of discovering new things, what are you, what are you drinking? <laughs> Today oh yes, so um, I'm um, I'm talking to you from Germany. So I've got my nice uh, Bayreuther Hell. Um, it's just a light beer that I picked up from the shop. Um, yeah, it's pretty good. It's a nice Hell beer. Yeah, can't complain. Yeah, I'm. I went. I went hardcore today, and I got a uh, Robert the Bruce, which is the local Three Floyds Brewery. It's their Scottish style ale, so it's like stupid strong. But I've just been saving, and I'm not allowed to drink it until it's like at least five o'clock wherever I am, because it's like otherwise oh. my day is shot. <laughs> nice. Well, cheers. Cheers to you. Let me. There you go. go. Nailed the it. Sound. <laughs> Well, so I I have many questions I want to ask you, um, but I have a random question for you that maybe doesn't totally apply to your research. Have you seen, since we're in the world of quarantine from COVID-19, yes. have you seen the story from National Geographic about how like animals returning to areas because of the quarantine, like how all of that's overblown yes. and not true? Right. Well, so is it true or is it not true? I know I've seen this uh, stuff on Twitter about um, like there's dolphins in Venice again and um, and fish and things like that. But what's the deal with that? So I, I read this article. I thought you might find this interesting. Um, yeah, I read the Nat Geo story. And basically, like the water is clearer in Venice, which is because, you know, the boats, you know, stir up the silt. That makes sense. Um, but like one of them was like, oh, the swans have returned to Venice. It's like, no, no, they've always been there there and the dolphins are actually not in venice they're in a different city like outside a different city in italy i don't remember the name of it It starts with a b um but yeah like so a bunch of these stories like the feel-good stories are actually not super accurate huh um that's fascinating yeah so still great photos but like you know not totally true yeah, and you know, it's funny how these stories kind of become part of um, the narrative that's surrounding like things like the virus that happens. I'm, I, it, as part of my fieldwork, I was working with a lot of environmental activists, and so you see these posts on um, their Facebook groups that are going around, and then it's kind of like, oh, look at how bad we were, and 
how um, like animals returning to, I don't know, empty towns or um, there was another video of like foxes or goats in, in uh, Spain running through the streets of this kind of creepy, you know, isolated t- uh, town that has no people in the streets. And it's like, you know, it's so funny that we pick up on those things and put them into our stories about, um, you know, uh, human responsibility or like what our role is on the planet now. It's funny to see. Yeah, I kind of – some of those stories I worry that, like, we're falling into eco-fascism of, like, oh, well, you know, if there were th- – this, like, Malthusian idea that, like, oh, if there were just less people, the animals right. would bounce back. And I'm like, eh, or we could just be better people. Like, yep. <laughs> we don't have to pollute. That's, That's the other option. Right, exactly. Um, but we should we should talk about your research and not – obsess over the thing that everybody else is obsessing on Twitter. Um, yeah, sure. So yeah, tell me, like, what's what's the, the elevator pitch for what you study? Oh, gosh, I'm still working on this, right? The two minute or what is it? 20 second thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so basically, I am an environmental anthropologist and I study eco villages. Um, I worked in Mexico for my field work, which I it feels like I just got back from, but it's actually been a couple months now. And I study how um, essentially environmental knowledge gets created through relationships with um, uh, plants, animals, um, unfamiliar species, um, and how like our ideas about how we're going to create a sustainable community um, get challenged by our relationships with these other non-humans, um, as they say in like multi-species studies, or more than human beings. Um, so yeah, that's basically it. I was working with a lot of farmers, a lot of environmental activists, a lot of people that have been trying to form these eco-village communities and live like a quote-unquote more sustainable lifestyle. So like were these in, you know, areas just outside of Mexico City or was this more like in rural areas where you'd see more indigenous folks? I actually did like a multi-sided study. So there were um, two places that I was at were just outside Mexico City. And then um, another was in the Yucatan Peninsula. And that was, if you look at the map of the peninsula and put your finger down right in the middle. That's basically where that community is. It's in the middle of the forest, essentially. And uh, and that was a pretty crazy experience. And so they they live um, next door within a, a Maya community. And so, yeah, like it's, it's a totally different experience being an hour or two outside of Mexico City and you can take the bus there to um, being like two hours or three hours from the capital of the state you know yeah much much more rural so yeah so in these experience like when you were doing your field work what kinds of like what were the primary you know animals or plants or like the the like local resources that they were trying to use sustainably and like balance with the local ecosystem um well it depends on the site right like that's what's interesting about doing a multi-sided um study to answer these questions is that the local resources are going to change wherever you go in Mexico. It's a hugely biodiverse um, country. Like the Yucatan is the neotropics. And then you have on the other side, like Jalisco is more, I don't know, all the way up to Baja is more desert. Um, so depending where, where you are, you know, what people use is going to change. Um, I think the more 
interesting sites that I visited were places uh, like, for example, in Yucatan, where people were really trying to learn about the local flora and fauna. Um, the group that founded that eco-village there, they were actually from Mexico City. And they moved to Yucatan like three, four years ago. So, you know, imagine going from New York City to the middle of like, I don't know, the Alaskan wilderness or something and like having to figure out what plants are edible, um, uh, you know, what kind of wildlife lives there. And um, and you when you start getting into it, you discover like, wow, there's this tree species that you can eat all the parts of it. And um, this root that's really good for this. And if this, if you touch this tree and you get like a burn on you, then you can use this other tree to cure it. And so this whole like knowledge formation process happens when you encounter these new um, environments. That's really interesting. So I guess I should have asked at the beginning, now that I'm thinking about it, like what the definition of an eco-village is and are these usually folks that are you know not from that area or you know maybe like you said are from the big city and decide that they want to try to be more you know live in a more sustainable way but then have to totally build this from scratch rather than you know oh I grew up on a farm and I know all the local tree species in my area kind of thing. That's such a good question because that's the people that study eco-villages and there's not many but um, people who have written about it that it, it's really hard to define because first off, it um, it changes kind of depending on what their goals are, right? And if you start unpacking, so an eco village generally, in the definition that always gets thrown around is it's a human scale settlement that's designed in such a way that you can meet or reduce greatly like your needs for these external things, right? So you're like producing the majority or much of what you're consuming. So that involves maybe collecting energy in solar panels or rainwater or um, using uh, landscaping techniques to divert uh, resources to different places, whether it be water, growing your own food, caring for animals, right? But um, there's eco-villages everywhere. Uh, and for example, there's eco-villages here in Germany that are pretty high tech. You know, maybe people come to them with money. They have money to invest in a really nice, uh, well, even within Mexico. Um, there's a big community of people from the U.S. and Canada that say, hey, Mexico sounds like a really nice place to retire, and I've got my retirement money saved up and I would really love to live in like a eco-friendly house and grow my own food and have chickens, you know, and it's cheaper to do that than in Portland or Austin or something. Oh, I'm from and, Austin. I know. <laughs> uh, okay. So, you know, well, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And so they say, okay, yeah, we'll do it in Mexico. And then you have on the other side, people that, um, people that uh, don't come from, you know, come from precarious backgrounds and decide, okay, I want a community, I want to be part of a community or form a community to, um, to kind of shore myself up here. So it really depends, you know, and obviously the strategies are going to change. If you don't have a lot of money, you can invest in these really nice solar panel um, systems or, uh, you know, build brand new houses from scratch out of nice materials, you're going to use recycled things. So what an eco-village is depends on what they look like really changes depending on where you are. Yeah, that's that's crazy. I, I guess you always kind of expect like the doomsday prepper type or something, but you're going to have everything from 
rich hippies to to folks yes. who are looking for a sense of community and stability. Mm-hmm, totally. Yeah. So so how are when these eco you know um, eco villages are built? Are they is the idea that like they own all the land around them, and then like are they are they super sustainable for the number of people versus their local ecosystem, or are they just making less of a dent on their local ecosystem? Does that question make sense? Yeah. Um, so, well, again, it depends. The one that I really like to go back to because I I um, I visited there more often, and I kind of just fell in love with the landscape was uh, the the one in Yucatan. And uh, that one, it they actually got quite an, a lot of visitors. And, and actually, one of the ways that they uh, operate and make a little bit of money, but also in, uh, accomplish their you know, other goals, like educational goals and programming goals, is having visitors or volunteers come and stay. And it got to a point where so many people wanted to come and visit that they had to say, like, okay, we're going to limit the number of people that come here. Um, because you start to see the effects on the landscape in ways that you might not in a city environment. Like the, um, if you're growing all of your own food and you're, you have well water and things like that, uh, and you know, you're powering your cell phones from a, a solar panel charger, the more people that are there put a greater strain on the area. Um, and so, those effects become immediately noticeable if there's 10 people compared to five people compared to 30, you know? Um, I would say that it really depends. There's a lot of people doing eco villages that do it well and come to it with, um, well, it's a learning process, right? And so people that come into it with this, like, um, okay, we're going to make mistakes, but we're going to adapt. And this is like generally what we want to try and do. And we want to try and live within our means. And other people that kind of have no idea what they're doing, but know they want to live a more ecologically, I don't know, sustainable something lifestyle, whatever that looks like. And so, um, and so actually a lot of eco villages, in my experience, they, they get formed and then they fall apart and then they get formed and fall apart. There's very few that have been around for forever, you know, or for more than a couple of years. And those are the ones that get a lot of attention. Um, but one of the things I found that was interesting in my research was why is it that so many people are drawn to this and trying to do it? And, you know, and aside from the one or two that are kind of famous um, or, you know, in Mexico or in Europe, what is it about people that are trying to do this on a grassroots level all over the place? Yeah, that's that's super interesting. So it seems like there's a, a really big interest in this, but maybe the staying power is difficult or something about that kind of like initial getting set up in the system makes it hard. You know, you don't if you don't know where you're starting from, it can make it really difficult to make it sustainable unless you've had them going forever. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. No. So was that the main question of your research when you were doing your field work? Um, well, I knew that, uh, yeah, so I was curious about how, uh, well, it's funny, you know how research questions change, right? You go yeah. into it, this idea like, oh, I'm going to do this, and then, of course, it becomes something completely different. So I went into it with this idea, like, 
how do people develop this cohesive, coherent idea about what it means to be sustainable? Because I started vis- or to live a sustainable lifestyle. Um, and where do they get that information and what does it look like when they actually put it into practice? Because I was going to all these different communities and you'd go to one and they'd say, uh, we raise animals here. The only way that you're going to get soil that regenerates itself, um, you know, and you're going to have nice composts and things is if you use animal manure. And then you can go to someplace else and they say, we're strictly vegetarian. And we do all the things that the people that raise animals say they're doing without animals. You know, and we use this instead. And then you'd go to a third place and they say, we don't do any of that, but we focus on this. And I was just, but all of them would call themselves an eco village and all of them uh, would call themselves like what they're doing sustainable. And I was curious about how people put those pieces together and how these, you know, things like permaculture, organic gardening, agroecology got filtered down and came to, you know, be applied in these places in particular ways. Um, and then when I got there, I realized that this multi-species angle that's getting really um, popular or interesting to anthropologists now, uh, it, basically the idea that we can learn a lot more by looking at um, human interactions with animals, plants than we thought before, um, realizing that people really construct their ideas about sustainability around um, their interactions with, uh, with animals, plants, microorganisms, that kind of thing. And so once I got to the field, I started picking up on, you know, why is it that you guys really like beekeeping? Like, what is it about bees that are interesting to you? Or why do you have this program of doing soil uh, composting this way? What is it about microorganisms? So I started following these trails, you know, of like all these non-humans and uh, asking people about that. And that's where stuff got really interesting. Do you feel like everyone was coming from the same point of like information and just had different interests in the kinds of, you know, animals and, and microorganisms that they were working with? Or was this something that was like specific to the region that the, you know, the, the, they were living in or that their background was from because like it seems like your idea of what is appropriate interactions or like the best way to to work with you know non-human animals differs probably based on your background yeah totally and um i would say so it's a function of where where you are right because um I don't know. For example, if you're in a tropical forest and there's trees all around that are producing fruit, you know, okay, then that's uh, that's something that we're going to emphasize in the system compared to if we're doing something in, I don't know, grassland. But there's also fundamental differences in these, um, I'll, I guess I'll call them like regenerative agriculture frameworks. Like, I don't know if you've heard of permaculture or... Um, broadly agroecology but within agroecology there's stuff like syntropic gardening which is getting popular um, biodynamic uh, farming and these um, methods all kind of draw on indigenous methods like permaculture uses a lot of things that Mayan people use Aztec people use but permaculture itself got popularized by some Australian guys um, uh, Bill Mollison and David Holmgren 
and that got and through them that method became popular throughout the world and that's why a lot of people know about it wait what is the what is the perma sorry permaculture is that right yeah it's it's called permaculture it's like a permanent agriculture or permanent culture it's basically a way of using like patterns found in nature to develop uh agricultural systems it's more complicated than that but it's like um uh, it's like a system of design principles that you could take and theoretically apply to any uh, environmental or any environmental context. Okay, so the idea is like, hey, don't grow soybeans on the same patch of land ad infinitum, but use the patterns that you're seeing in your local ecosystem to dictate when you plant what and where and how to like regenerate the soil or something like right. that. Like in a very right, exactly. <laughs> general term. Yeah, exactly. Or like um, uh, make sure that plants have multiple uses. So that's an example of like a general principle that, and I'm not quoting it exactly right, there's 12 of them and it's almost like, you know, 12 commandments of permaculture. But essentially, like if you're going to plant a garden and you want something on the edge of the garden to um, break wind, like break up the wind so it's not hitting your, you know, your nice tomato plants directly, you might plant, I don't know, a... A, a, a blackberry um, bush, and then you have right. fruit and windbreaking properties. Ex- exactly. So you're getting like two things for, for one, right? Okay. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I just, I had never heard that term before. Yeah, that's super interesting, and it gets popular in certain circles, and then when people go to found an eco-village, they're like, I- I'm a permaculture person all the way. And then somebody else might come to it and say, well, I'm a biodynamic gardening a gardener, and those two things, they both are essentially organic, but it goes way deeper than that. There's a lot of really interesting differences between the two, and it filters how people look at um, at the surrounding environment. Yeah, that's super interesting. And so then, like, how do you – so, like, I understand the general aspect of the, like, questions you're asking, but then how do you – like gather data on this. Like I, kn- I know what a chemist does in the lab, generally speaking. I know what psychologists do. Like what kind of data is it that you're collecting and how are you analyzing it? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question, um, especially for anthropologists, right? Like our job is to observe and kind of just like, you know, ask people what they're doing. That's essentially how anthropologists gather data. Now, you're going to have a lot of anthropologists calling in like, that's not what we do. Um <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, my, my um, methodology was interviewing people, but it was also working in these eco-villages. Um, so in one, I was working in the stables with um, sheep for, that was my job during the day. And I was taking notes with the, as the, you know, main shepherd was telling me about why he checked the sheep and when and uh, how he knew something was wrong and um, then I take notes about the sheep. What are the sheep doing? Um, I even was like setting my tent up, like up next to where the sheep stables were. So I was around them. And that method is we call it participant observation. Um, no one really knows specifically how to do participant observation with non-humans yet. And there are a couple people figuring it out. Primatologists, people that study um non-human primates, uh, and, uh, and others, but, uh, but that's kind of what I was doing, working with beekeepers. I'd go in and go, um, go with them when they were opening their hives and checking them, 
and they'd tell me, oh, this is a sign of this, we need to do this, and, you know, and then asking why, and then later in an interview asking them again, and then you go back and kind of filter all of that information and analyze it. That sounds like it's a, it's quite a job. I mean, like so much of it is just like having good notes and good understanding of, of knowing the right kind of, you know, why questions to ask, basically. Yeah, yeah. And learning how to interview is a really important skill that you pick up as you go along. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's really important. And what I realize is, or what you probably realize too doing a show like this is you just let people talk. Or if you just ask a simple question like, why is that? Why do you think that is? You get some really, really interesting um, responses that you never would have would have predicted. Yeah, that's absolutely true, especially for like journalistic slash this kind of podcast. It's like have some background knowledge and then ask the really basic questions and you'll actually get so much information. Yeah, right, right. That's so cool. So what, what got you interested in this to begin with? In, uh, well, yeah. In your PhD, generally speaking. (laughs) Mm. So, like, I'm one of these people that did not have, like, a direct path to where I am right now. When I was doing my undergrad, I wanted to be um, an archaeologist. And I was doing, like, I was studying Latin. I really wanted to be, like, a a Roman archaeologist. And and then I got interested... um, well, I realized that I really wanted to talk to people instead after doing all this work in the archaeology lab. And uh, on, on the so I started exploring cultural anthropology. I did my master's in, um, in uh, indigenous communities living on the U.S.-Mexico border. And, uh, and I really like working in Mexico. But on the side, like the, how I came to the topic that I'm studying now is that I was on the side working in... Uh, permaculture organic gardening groups in San Diego for a couple of years and got really interested in the practice of it. Um, and I've always been around farming. My grandma is a beekeeper um, and uh, we kept chickens and all of that kind of stuff. So uh, I got a small opportunity to go check out eco villages in Mexico. And that's how I started getting the idea for this project. And then the way I came to CEU was um, I always tell people that if they go to conferences, you know, they have that like hall where all the book publishers set up their, you know, the books that are on offer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was wandering around there and I came across this edited volume that was all about eco villages and um, bioregionalism and these kinds of topics. And, And I found my advisor by just like paging through that. And I bought that book and that she ended up becoming my advisor. Um, but it was total chance. And I was like, oh, wow, now I can pair something that I'm really interested in on a personal level with something I've always been curious about and um, turn it into a PhD project. Yeah, that's so cool. And like such a happenstance of, oh, I was at a conference and I found a great book and then I found a great, you know, a mentor through that book. Like that's right. wild. <laughs> yeah, totally. And like also you never know where you're going to end up either. I mean, I, like if you're studying, I, I'm kind of one of those people that like has a jack of all trades background and I feel like, you know, someday my, you know, art history class or whatever is going to come in handy. And then there's other people that are super specialized about things. And sometimes, you know, the really like generalist approach worked out. 
Um, and I think anthropology, for example, is the perfect, perfect field for that because it allows you to just explore like in a million different directions. And because it just intersects so many different aspects that like being too focal on one point, you might, you know, miss the forest for the trees kind of thing. Right, right, right. Definitely. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so you're in your third year, but you're so because you're at Central European University, are you are PhDs a full, you know, five to six years like in the States? Or is it like you're in your quote unquote final year by being in your third year? Uh, so no, the we get so technically the program is a three year program. Um, does that mean people finish usually in three years? <laughs> no. Um, and my and me and my colleagues that work in more of the environmental humanities anthropology side, we did a full year of field work, which is standard for anyone doing like a PhD in anthropology or, or um, a project like we did in the US. So I wouldn't say we're behind, but we have some catching up to do. Um, and uh, I'm going to be sticking around in Europe to finish my dissertation this year, hopefully, hopefully soon. Yeah, yeah, I feel that. I, I definitely, my program is officially five years, and I'm like, I'm finishing out my sixth year right now. I should probably leave <laughs> soon. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that's a long time, you know, and that's, I think, a lot of reason why people come. There's pluses and minuses of coming to Europe. Um, I was, happen to already be here, uh, but yeah, it's definitely the short PhD is a, is a, is a nice bonus. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, do you know what you want to do after you finish your PhD? Like, do you want to stick in academia? Or are you looking elsewhere? Like, um, I would be interested in, well, I don't know, in an ideal world, like I would combine the teaching with having my own project somewhere. I especially in the, you know, pandemic times, I'm like, dreaming of a little place where I could grow my own food again and, you know, have some bees or something like that. Um, if we ever go uh, back outside again, that's probably what I'm going to do. <laughs> but it would it would be a dream to teach, but, you know, how things go, I'm just going to see what happens. So. Yeah, very. it's a very flexible outlook. And I, I feel you. I'm in Chicago, and it's, like, still pretty cold. Like, it's snowing right now. But um, all of my friends who are quarantined are like, I've planted all of my seedlings. I'm very excited. <laughs> like, yeah, right? Yeah. What little time I can spend doing something outdoorsy, I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the last final question that I think I'm going to start adding uh, to everyone's interviews is like, what is the thing that you've been doing to stay sane and feel centered during the era of COVID-19? Like, what are you doing that really helps you cope with kind of this radical change in how everyone's living um i wish i had a better question i am kind of um i don't know if this is a healthy way of coping i'm writing i mean i i saw a really good uh suggestion the other day from a friend who said like 20 years from now or 50 years from now people are really going to want to know what people were going through in this time so I'm picking up my journal again and journaling because I think like if you're trying to write a dissertation or trying to write a blog article or anything like that, journaling on the side is getting that writing muscle going anyway. But it's going to be really interesting to see like 20 years from now what we were all thinking about. And it's kind of therapeutic too. So. Absolutely. Yeah, I yeah. I used to write 
a page every single day from middle school until like maybe a year or two ago. And now I journal. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. I, I, man, they take up so much space though. But now I journal more infrequently, but I'm trying to do it a lot more. Because I, I think I also saw someone on Twitter post about, about that. And I was like, yeah, I would like to kind of journal my own experiences in this time. And it's going to be, if nothing else, interesting. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, well, I think that's a good place to leave it. So I just wanted to say thanks to everyone for listening to this episode. And if you like the show, please tell your friends about the podcast and leave a review on iTunes. Your review helped, or well, I guess that's now Apple Podcasts. I should update that. Uh, but your review helps me reach a larger audience and get more interesting guests on the show. In addition, I have a Patreon account where you become a patron of the podcast to help support the production costs. Friend of the show, Tyler Dammy, has been editing the show for free, but your patronage would go a long way to make this a more sustainable project. Uh, and if you want to hear what I'm up to, I'm on Twitter at PHDrinking, and my personal account is at Sadie Witt. And then, Aaliyah, how do you want listeners to find out more about you and your work? Um, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Olea, O-L-E-A underscore Morris, M-O-R-R-I-S. I'm new to Twitter. Um, so follow me and say hi. I, um, I am diving into academic Twitter. And uh, Instagram, just at Olea Morris. Join us. Join us. I'm on Twitter too much right now, though. It's, it's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, as always, I'll include links about your research in the podcast description so that um, people can take a look at that and the Twitter handle in case people didn't catch it. So uh, thanks for joining me on the show. This has been awesome. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks so much. And to all you listeners out there, cheers. Cheers.